Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. This is that east. They, there are very powerful people that want to keep you out. Oh no, they do. But they're willing to put their money where their mouth is in a big way. So, this conversation never happened. This is crazy though. They should want me. I'm a great candidate. People love me. These people are corrupt. Well, maybe you're right. This story is nuts. This story about Carrie Lake and the recording where the Arizona GOP chair, DeWitt is his last name, is basically trying to bribe her out of running for Senate. The story is nuts. When the story first came out, uh, was it yesterday, the day before, I swear to you, I thought it was fake in classic Tony Katz fashion. I'm like, I'm going to hold off a touch. Justice Coach, uh, can we Can we please? There's the recording. Because Carrie Lake recorded the conversation, and now DeWitt is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. She is editing this thing 12 ways from Sunday. We worked together. We were. She was an employee there. The thing is nuts. What I cannot make hide nor hair of is why is it that people are freaked out by this? I'm not saying that it is moral or decent, and I'm not saying you wouldn't remove uh, your uh, Republican chairman because of it, or any chairman. I'm saying this is politics, right? Doesn't this happen all the time? Tony Katz, uh, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Carrie Lake, a former uh, uh, anchor, uh, TV anchor, then ran for governor in Arizona and should have won that race. Should have won that race, lost that race. Carrie Lake has uh, since been the the. Uh, uh, the right, right wing uh, poster child for for sure. All Trump, all the time, uh, unrelenting, and all that. And I thought in the campaign that that actually helped. I was surprised to see her lose uh, to Katie Hobbs, who is a child who would not debate, who would not talk, and when she talks, uh, as has been described, she sounds like a muppet. It's and I'm not talking about it in the cool Roy Kent way. I like Muppets. No, I'm talking. That's a terrible Roy Kent. I'm talking about. She sounds like a Muppet. But Carrie Lake uh, has has never once engaged, in my view, uh, any level of rational moderation to a conversation. Even if we are to agree on on the subject, it's the presentation. She she's. Is sometimes you don't have to prove you're tough. Sometimes you just do the thing. She, I always get the vibe that she's trying to prove it. That's a, that's a personal take of mine. So the argument is, is that the Arizona GOP chairman, Jeff, Jeff DeWitt is his name, attempted to bribe Carrie Lake to get her out of the race. And the audio I just shared with you is just some of that audio where there's people got a lot of money and they want to make things happen. And you heard Carrie Lake say, uh, these people should want me. I'm a great candidate. People love me. And she actually says, so what do they want? What do you? What do they want me to do? So what do they want? What do they want me to do? You want to stay out for two years. 
What? I'll tell you what I can offer you. The ask I got today from back east was, this is hesitant for us. Is there any companies out there or something that could just put her on the payroll and give her to keep her out? And I said, well, what do you want to do? Whatever we need to do. I'm not willing to accept that. Then I'm going to be the biggest pain in these people's ass. And go back and tell them that. I'm running, and I'm going to be the biggest pain in their ass. And I'm willing to tell them that. And they're going to have to kill me. To stop me. Is there a number at which I can be bought? <laughs> That's what it's about. You can take a pause for a couple of years. No. And then go right back to what you're doing. Mm -mm. No. Ten million, twenty million, third no, no, no. A billion? No. This is not about money. This is about our country. Now I'm actually convinced that at that moment. Carrie Lake knew she was going to make this audio public and that was going in there. And, and DeWitt actually is like, hey, if I could give you a counter. I actually wish you'd just give me a counter offer this big. Give me a counter. <laughs> I can't. I can't be bought. That is some damning stuff. The offer via the Arizona GOP chair to get you not to run. The GOP chair states uh, that uh, this is edited. Um, is, put out a statement. I, th I said things I regret, but I realized when hearing Lake's recording that I was set up. I believe she orchestrated this entire situation to have control over the state party. And it is obvious from the recording that she crafted her performance responses with the knowledge that she was recording it, including to use this recording later to portray herself as a hero in her own story. I believe that's absolutely true. I want to say that about Carrie Lake now. She knew she was recording it. She knew how she was going to answer it. She knew how it was going to play. It doesn't change the fact that you offered her money from outside sources to stay out of the race. So two things can be true at the same time. And for people who are supporters of Carrie Lake, they're going to be like, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Use their game against them. We love that stuff. Don't just take a lion down. Punch them directly in the face. Cost them their job. Screw the establishment right on. Absolutely. Here's the part that is kind of a boggle in the mind. It's you, it's me, it's the bar stool. Can I ask a question? Doesn't this happen all the time? Doesn't this happen all the time? Hey, Tommy, listen, we're going to run so-and-so, and, -so, and we're, that's the candidate we think has the best shot, so we're going to need you to step out of this. Look, we got a position for you over here. You do this for two years, do this for four years, and then we'll get you back in there. And then you got to decide whether or not you would do that, whether you're going to play ball. There's been conversations over the last years. you got 900 people run for president. Can't a, a, a Republican chairman get a couple of these people out of the race? It's time for you to sit down. Isn't that exactly what Ronna McDaniel is doing right now, right now, to Nikki Haley? Isn't it? Hold on a second. I've I've got the audio. I've got I've got it. I know I do. Hold on. Let me let me let me find it. Uh, it's it's not every day I have to look up Ronna McDaniel. You know, I, I try not to. I try not to 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 do. There it is. Didn't she say? 
Uh, I don't. Here, here it is. It's it's right here. Well, one thing I will say about the whole field of candidates that have run for president on our side, I commend them. They've been great. This has been a great contest. But I think there's some history that was made tonight. We have never had a nominee in our party that has uh, won without winning both with winning either Iowa or New Hampshire. Donald Trump is the first ever to win both. Uh, I'm looking at the math and the path going forward, and I don't see it for Nikki Haley. I think she's run a great campaign. But I do think there is a message that's coming out from the voters, which is very clear. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. And we need to make sure we beat Joe Biden. That's the RNC chairwoman telling Nikki Haley to sit down. These things happen all the time. It doesn't usually happen with an offer of cash. It usually happens with a job. Hey, you're going to be vice president. Just get in line. Now, can we just, can we nip something in the bud? Can we just put an end to a, a, a conversation re- really quick? It is so not going to be Nikki Haley, who is the VP for for Trump. Oh, no, 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 no. Elise Stefanik is more probable, and it won't be her. I think the conventional wisdom that it's Tim Scott makes absolute incredible sense. Incredible sense that it is the senator from from South Carolina, and, and and if I could be so bold, it's because he's the most like Mike Pence. Oh, oh! Someone's gonna take that as an insult, and then someone's gonna say, "Well, wait a second. There's there's a point. Tim Scott is an unbelievable number two. His conversations about faith, his conversations about scripture, conversation about humble background and beginning." who sees it as a value to be supportive of the number one guy, sees that as important. The very concept of, wait for it, servant leadership. This has always been my argument about Mike Pence, who's always been very, very nice to me personally and professionally. Not mad at the guy. I don't think he's a traitor by any stretch of the imagination. But I stated that he shouldn't run for president, and I stated that he couldn't get the nomination. And the reasons were quite clear. America doesn't want what he has to offer. But the other problem is, is that his entire modus operandi, his his own purpose statement, is about the very idea of service to others. That concept of servant leadership. He's the guy who should be the number two. I said that, you know, it was DeSantis or somebody else that Mike Pence is going to be the most perfect Secretary of State there is. Perfect. There is no one better at delivering the message of America and won't go off script. And I say that knowing that in a very super, super rare, in this campaign, Pence did go off script. If you remember that in some of the debates, it was like, that's not him. We're Indiana. We know that's not him. I don't know what's going on there. I thought it was super weird. But he's not built to be a number one. And I am not a believer that Tim Scott is either. I happen to like Tim Scott. I happen to like Tim Scott quite a bit. And I can see how that works. I can see how Tim Scott is an absolute excellent pick. It makes sense in a lot of ways. We can discuss who else we think it it, it might be. But going back to this this story, um, this guy, Jeff DeWitt, says, look, 
She edited this audio. She knew she was recording it. And I know she she threatened me. She said she's got more audio. So to spare my family and so I can get back to my business, because I don't get paid to be the chairman of the Republican Party of Arizona, I'm leaving. Throwing it back at her. Of course, of course she recorded it. I mean, we know that. Of course she knew what she was going to say. And of course she spun it to her advantage. You offered her money to get out of the race. She uh, She's well within her rights to say, you offered me money to get out of a race. That's going to help her raise money and possibly win the race. Um, the the I, I just think that people who are stunned by this, I, I, I've always assumed that this is exactly what's happening. I've interviewed high level. I've consulted to some levels, but I, I've never, I've never been an elected official at those levels or a player in terms of as a candidate. I assume that's the way it goes. It shouldn't go that way. Okay. Uh, but it does. And I don't know why everybody is so clutching their pearls and surprised. That's a weird part to me. Like they're, they're amazed by this. I, I, I don't know what, I don't know what's to be amazed by. I always thought that this was the way. I'm not cynical, just just honest. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. The Anti-Defamation League, uh, ostensibly, if, if we want to talk about their, their mission is to uh, confront and combat anti-Semitism, right? That's how they started. That's how they built. ADL fights all forms of anti-Semitism and bias. That isn't what they do. That's what they used to do. Now they take on a progressive ideology and they say, you, for noting that men are not women and women are not men, you're biased and we need to report you. This is what the Daily Signal, which is part of the Heritage Foundation, reported uh, that the ADL was referring people like Christopher Rufo of the Manhattan Institute, Matt Walsh of Daily Wire, and Libs of TikTok to the authorities. I forgot if I said hello. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, that's the name of the show. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. And I say to you, the ADL no longer has any value. Sure, we heard some statements of strength post-October uh, 7th and the attack on Israel by Hamas, which is a terrorist organization. But the ADL, for a long time, has not been engaged in, 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 in a forceful counter to anti-Semitism on college campuses. They rather took the position that we should be saying things like Black Lives Matter. We should be uh, focused on diversity. You know, just like the story about, about Carrie Lake, I, I've often in, in discussion of anti-Semitism and discussions of, of, of what has happened in the United States post-October 7th, the attack on Israel by Hamas, a terrorist organization. My, my surprise has not been in the proof of Jew hatred but rather in the surprise of people that there's so much Jew hatred. I'm stunned that they're stunned. Can't believe they didn't know. You didn't know that Colombia was a factory for bigotry? 
that Harvard was fully engaged in bigotry? They had already said, we don't need any more Asian students. We've got enough of your kind. That's what they said. Oh, they said it in more flowery flowery language? That means nothing to the student who worked his ass off to get a 1580 on her SATs and a 5.2 weighted GPA just to find out that they're not good enough for Harvard because some kid who wrote a poem about not wanting guns on the street was a better fit because of their radical ideology. Harvard take students based on ideological acceptance, not based on merit. And just like the ADL, the Ivy League no longer provides value. This is something that we have all seen over the last years, and we've all talked about it, regarding the press. Does the New York Times hold any value anymore? The answer is, of course not. And you know that. The minute I said New York Times, you were like, no, no. You you did not wait for me to finish the sentence. But you all, you know that answer. All the news that's fit to print. That's that's the, the saying for the old gray lady. But when they decide it's not fit to print facts, but to print narrative, to move an ideological message, to get certain people elected, or to damage others, they cease being of value when they stated in 2016 we donald trump is such a threat we have to go against journalistic principles to stop him and then when they lost they literally said okay we're back to doing news now you're you're back to doing what now when did i become british when did that what are you talking about you're back why would you have ever left and what makes you think we just come back so willingly oh okay hey guys they're journalists now it's okay we can go back and read them what are you doing you're lost and over the last eight years you've chosen to be lost you no longer provide value the ivy league the adl and very much so there are many of us who feel this way about the institutions like the fbi things come and things go And it is a serious issue when the institutions that we believe in that did serve us so well for so long do fail us for the reasons these things fail. And then they try to claim power based on their history, having nothing to do with their current moment and situation. But they can't have the power. The ADL cannot have the say on bigotry when they try to silence people who are pointing out madness in our society. The work that Chris Rufo and and Lives for TikTok do is excellent, important work in exposing bigotry and exposing madness and exposing abuse. That is not about hatred. They're not attacking people. They're showing what it is people are saying and doing. And what they're saying and doing is an attack on our kids and on Western civilization, on the American way of life. You want to call them out for that? I want to give them a cookie. The institutions in many ways have failed us. And there are some institutions like the ADL and like the Ivy League, like the New York Times, we just have to walk away from. They no longer provide any value. We know it. Now we have to walk. I'm Tony Katz. 
just when you think you have a basic understanding of, of, of where the economy is, that you saw inflation trend down and then you saw it pick back up, the consumer price index of 3.9%. That is not the target rate of 2% that the Federal Reserve is, is looking for. That's double, Kitten, double where uh, the Federal Reserve wants to be. You're like, okay, things are not going so great. And then you take a general mood uh, that that exists w- within the country. This general mood of things are not good. We are not in a happy, strong place. This economy is problematic and dangerous and has no end in sight from being problematic and dangerous. When you saw the New Hampshire primaries take place, uh, of course they asked people, hey, what, what is your thought on this? And what is your thought on that? This was CBS News. And and this was what they found out. Yeah, so people are really uh, bummed out about the economy here in New Hampshire, even uh, if the overall big picture numbers are going in the right direction. And even if people's own personal experiences in general are going okay, there's a lot of gloom. And one of the reasons is food prices, for example, generally going up. And we talked to a bunch of people outside of a grocery store in Derry, New Hampshire. We couldn't find anybody feeling good about the economy. And that that's just human nature. Psychologically, you go into a store, if you're paying more for items that you get every week, that really sticks with you. It really annoys you. It gets you down. People were upset about it. And so are they making it? Yeah, they're making it. But are they bothered by the fact that frozen OJ has gone up double digits and that steak on Friday is up double digits? Absolutely. And that's really driving people's perspective on things. So that was out, out of California. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Dr. Matt Will joins us, economist at the University of Indianapolis, because with that backdrop, This was today's news, Dr. Will. The U.S. economy grew faster than expected. You're talking about a GDP, gross domestic product, of 3.3%, which in any economy or or an average economy, we'd say "That's, that's just fine. That's some solid growth. But we saw inflation tick back up. There are now indicators that inflation is ticking back down. Talk to me about the numbers. What do they say? Oh, goodness. There's so much to cover here. Let me first of all say that this is a good number. There's a lot of good numbers in this report. I am not going to say that there's any, well, there are a few things that are concerning to me, but overall 3.3 is great. But why is it down? That's the most important thing. And let me say what the headline should be. The headline should be Biden is losing the war on the economy because the economy is looking good, but not because of Biden. The number one thing in this report that causes the, G- the GDP to go up is lower inflation. Now, right before we went on the air, you mentioned to me, well, the other reports say it's double what it should be, and you just mentioned that. That's true, but in this report, this report says that the, G- the inflation last quarter was 1.5%. That's dramatically lower than what we were talking about just a couple of weeks ago and below the target for the Fed. That's because there's different inflation reports coming out of the government. This one contradicts the others. This one says inflation is good. So that's one factor. Can we, you want me to go into the other ones? You want to chat for inflation? You have to go into all of them. There is, there is no level of, of wonkification that, that we can't walk down because this gets confusing. You know, how, how government agencies and others manipulate data to their benefit as opposed to yes what we know when we're the people, you know, just like you saw from that CBS reporting, yep at the store seeing meat being double in price and other things being double in price. Well, 
According to this report, not the CPI, not the PPEI, not the CPE, all the other ones, the same inflation still double what it should be. This one says it's down. So in that respect, Biden is losing the war because Powell is winning the war. Powell's trying to reduce inflation and Biden's trying to increase it from spending. The second bad thing is that the GDP is up because government spending is up 4.3% for the year. That is not a good reason for government uh, for the GDP to go up is because government's spending more money. Next, consumer spending is up um, 2.8% in this report. That's below the national average of the GDP, but it's pulling, you know, it's causing some juice in the economy. That's not a good thing. Why is it bad? Because credit card debt, highest spending in history, according to the top banks in the country, highest delinquency that we've seen in recent memory. Third reason, and this GDP report says it, people are saving less money. We've talked about this before. Again, in the fourth quarter, people are dipping into their savings to spend money. And this great holiday season that everyone was bragging about, the fourth quarter was worse than the third quarter as far as holiday spending. Now it gets now it gets stupid. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. All we heard in fourth quarter spend was about how people were spending more, but no one answered the question, were they spending more and getting more? Or were they spending more for the the, the average things that they were going to buy? So they bought less, but they spent more to actually get less. That question never got uh, a full, fully answered. But but I want to go back to a, a little bit of, of what you were getting into there. Um, the, the, the winning, the whole winning the war com- conversation, if the fight is between Biden and Powell, Biden spending versus and, and those programs that engage spending versus Powell working the interest rates and, and Powell also Biden versus capitalism. I want to talk about that, too. This is this is exactly where I was going to go. Don't steal my thunder, sir. That's just my rude. apologies. Uh, it is that we're the ones who end up losing because in this conversation, this almost conversation in the ether about where the economy is i i don't mind a 3.3 gdp i'd be very happy if that showed the country is really starting to kick 3.3 is a wonderful number for a country with the economic output of the united states but the american people aren't feeling any of this we're still stuck in it we still see the closings we see the higher rents for example and what that's doing to the restaurant industry closing people out the higher labor costs even if you can get people to show up you're paying the higher labor labor costs even though they don't they don't always show up that is putting the squeeze on on, on hospitality we're seeing less therefore you're seeing more crowding in those places those costs going up we're taking the hit on every side yet wall street seems to want to play a game of things are great so talk to me about the 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 part two of this which is uh biden versus capitalism well the reason wall street sees things as great is because wall street is shifting their focus away from washington which i've said for years they need to do stop looking at washington and look at main street look at manufacturing private investment was up 10 percent in the third quarter that's an amazing amount Biden has nothing to do with private investment. In fact, he tries to punish companies. He tries to punish them for reinvesting their money. He wants to increase their taxes. He wants to punish them for trying to do stock buybacks. He wants to destroy capitalism, but capitalism says, no, we're going to do AI. We're going to reinvent our companies. We're going to invest. In addition, all the restrictions he's putting on businesses, exports were up 6.3% in the fourth quarter. So capitalism is saying, here, Biden, you're trying to harm us 
ban our business from exporting, regulate us more. We're going to export more. We're going to invest more. So Wall Street's looking to itself and companies and saying, look, we're doing good things. We're growing the economy. They're winning the battle against Biden. Powell is winning the battle against Biden. For the American consumer, we're lucky Biden is losing most of the battles. But as you said, you go to the store. You're still getting less for the same dollar. Let's talk where we are losing the battle, where the American consumer is clearly losing the battle. And you brought it up earlier. Third quarter credit card debt was $1.08 trillion. Now, I have not seen yet data on fourth quarter credit card debt, but you started bringing up the concept of defaults, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Can you talk to me about the data you're seeing about defaults? Do we have data on fourth quarter debt, and at what moment, well, if that moment hasn't already come, are people ringing the bell saying this is completely unsustainable, the crash is coming if not here? Well, you know what? We don't have the data because the banks aren't releasing it. They released anecdotal information. So the top four banks in the country said they have seen record level of delinquencies in credit card and debt payments that occurred in the fourth quarter. So we're waiting for the actual numbers on that, But I wonder if they're just afraid to tell us because it's that bad. And then this report does tell us that we're saving less money. The savings rate dropped 0.2%. We're saving less money. And again, anecdotal from the um, big banks, because they haven't released the actual numbers, they say highest credit card debt in history, higher delinquencies than we've seen, savings rates below pre-pandemic levels. All of those things point to what you just said, Tony, that the consumer is credit crunched, which we've talked about the credit crunch before. They're strapped for money. They're dipping into their savings just to make ends meet on a daily basis. If the consumer is under a credit crunch, and we have discussed this in multiple ways. So, for example, you want to go buy a a used car, but the bank will not lend you money to buy a used car because they're concerned of your ability to pay it back. And then when you go to the used car lot, they don't even exist anymore because they weren't able to get loans to purchase vehicles from the auction because they feared that the consumer coming to the now empty lot wouldn't be able to pay back the loan. So it hit in in, in both ways. It would seem to me, uh, a, a novice, uh, Dr. Matt Will, uh, that a credit crunch would be disastrous for everybody on Wall Street and Midwest Main Street. Do I have this wrong? Okay, you're you're kind of uh, naive to say you're naive. That is incorrect. You're very you described it very well. That's exactly what we're ha- what's happening right now. And the credit crunch to go a, l- a little bit further is we have not yet seen the volume of defaults rolling into let's say commercial real estate. Think of all those empty office buildings in the downtown in a big city. Those office buildings were on lease for a long time. People are not going back to work into the office. They are, but not as much. It's not going to go back to pre-pandemic level. So what if you've loaned money for someone to buy a building? They're going to default on that. And we're starting to see those default rates increase. So the next big tsunami coming is the commercial real estate credit card default. And that's going to be the the next iteration of the crunch. And that's real real estate credit default. So it was, I think the Wall Street Journal had a piece about this because we did discuss it. There's going to be, uh, before 2028, a tremendous amount, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, of loans that come to maturity. 
And when those loans come to maturity and you can't refinance at a better rate or even uh, the same rate, you're going to be paying far more than you bought that property for. There are going to be a fair amount of people more than convinced to give up the property, considering that people still aren't coming back to the office in numbers that make those properties worthwhile. How does the commercial real estate market and that impending coming clearly looming issue affect us on Midwest Main Street? We saw it in March. Remember the bank crisis we talked about? And I said, it's not going away. It's just it's just going down a little bit. We're just letting it, you know, it's going to sleep, but it's going to rear its ugly head. Most of the loans made by local regional banks are commercial loans. They sell their mortgages. They don't keep your mortgage. They sell it to somebody else. So the loans on their books are these long-term commercial loans. And when those things come due, as you just mentioned in the report you, you, met, you stated, those things are going to cause the banks to have a crisis. And I believe that the bank crisis is not yet gone. And I keep talking about this in my speeches because, you know, people say, oh, March, it was here, it was massive, it was fixed. No, it was just subdued for a moment. It will be back. And what does it look like when it's back? How do we see it? Like, what is the indicator for people? I don't mean to ask a question on a question. What's the indicator for the layman where they go, yep, time to hunker it all down? Um, when your regional banks go bankrupt. Now, I'm not predicting that. There are solid regional banks, okay? We've met, mentioned that before. The regional banks, especially in Indiana, are fantastically safe from interest rate risk. But where they're not safe from is default risk, which means if someone doesn't pay back their loan. But 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 wouldn't that argument also apply to large banks? You could say, well, they've got more cash, so so they, they have a safer position, but they also deal with bigger loans. It, it, one, one could ostensibly argue. So doesn't the problem also apply there? It does, but not as much because the regional banks are more on a percentage basis. Most of their portfolio is in local, regional construction, commercial loans. The national banks have much more. They like have bonds to Coca-Cola or bonds to IBM. So they have a different portfolio structure, but all those local banks, your hospitals, you know, your, your apartment complexes, they go to the local bank to get those loans. And so that's why there's more exposure to the regional and local banks. Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. One wonders what it is that Governor Eric Holcomb is going to do. You have governor after governor after governor after governor supporting Governor Greg Abbott of Texas in this fight about the border and border security. You've got Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia. You've got Governor Gianforte of Montana, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, Governor Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma, Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota, all saying that they stand with Governor Greg Abbott. Now, a lot of people think that this is Greg Abbott defying the Supreme Court. It's not. The Supreme Court case was about whether or not Texas can stop uh, Customs and Border Patrol, really the federal government, from getting rid of this razor wire that Texas put out. It was a 5-4 decision saying, no, the state cannot stop 
the federal government from making these changes. And I've argued I understand the, the basic philosophy. Isn't it the philosophy that the president decides immigration policy? And if you're putting up this wire, you are preventing the policy that he has in place, which is really an admission of the kind of horrible policy that he's got in place. There's nothing that says that the governor is supposed to just lay down and take the abuse of his state and not defend it and not protect it from what clearly can be seen as an invasion. You don't have to be wearing the same uniform. You have single able-bodied men coming across the border legally and illegally. Yes, you can call it an invasion. Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution. He cited it in his letter. You've heard me talk about it a million times. What is Governor Eric Holcomb going to do? Is he going to side with Governor Greg Abbott? Or is he going to stay silent? Is the governor of Indiana going to stay quiet? Because this issue is an issue for everybody. This is a nationwide issue. It belongs to all of us. I know he was on a road trip to Canada trying to bring some business. I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, have any issue with that. But silence on this. I wonder if he'll be silent when ten thousand illegal immigrants are dropped off in Indianapolis and Bloomington and Muncie. I wonder if he'll be silent at that moment. I'm hoping he's not. I'm hoping he will come out in favor of what Greg Abbott is doing so we finally get enough pressure on the administration and Congress to get policy that makes sense and keeps the country safe and does put America first. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.